Welcome to the Rabbit's Foot series. I'm Ben, and I am a massive fan of the Mission Impossible franchise. My co-host Matt, on the other hand, has never seen any of the movies. This is a six-part series where I introduce him to the world of Mission Impossible, one film at a time. This intro will self-destruct in five seconds. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Bottom of the Bin Rabbit's Foot series. This is our journey through the Mission Impossible movies. Today we are on Mission Impossible 3, joined as always by Matt Butler. Hey, hey, that's me. So Mission Impossible 3 was released on May 3rd, 2006. It was directed by J.J. Abrams. And what I didn't know until I was looking into this for reviewing it is that it was his first movie. Really? I mean, he had directed that show, Alias. So he's this is his transition from TV into uh, movies. This might have actually been my first J.J. Uh, Abrams film that I ever saw, because I saw this one years back in the theaters. So the intro to this where I say my co-host Matt has never seen any of the movies is technically a lie. Like, you had seen this, but... I The thing is, though, I had remembered next to nothing about it. I remember that there was that Phil Seymour Hoffman was in it. They um, 3D print a mask. Tom Cruise runs for an, an inordinate amount of time. Mm-hmm. And there's like a shack where they're holding his wife. And that's about it. It's pretty much the movie right there. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I basically summed it up. But like I, for me watching this, it was paying attention to uh, all the small things that make this uh, a J.J. Abrams vehicle. And you know, for his, it, I didn't, I didn't know that was his uh, first film, and it has his fingerprints all over it, from the color grading to uh, the go, 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 go kind of pacing of it. You know, like we we can't stay in one place too long in a J.J. Abrams film, and I think this is one of the few cases where that works. I think I think J.J. Abrams is very suited for for Mission Impossible. Maybe not so much for Star Trek or Star Wars, but, you know, he always has that kinetic pacing. We also have the genius scriptwriters Robert Orsi and Alex Kurtzman, who have been behind such amazing screenplays as Transformers, uh, Transformers, <laughs> Revenge of the Fallen, and The Amazing Spider-Man 2. <laughs> I actually enjoyed a lot of the the quippy lines and everything, so... If this honestly, I think this is the first Mission Impossible movie that I've actually enjoyed. Okay, yeah. So I agree with some of the things you said there. Um, I like this movie. I think it's my general consensus on this movie. That's weird to say consensus when it's one person's opinion. You're consolidating all your thoughts into one. My general thoughts on this movie is that I like it as an action movie. It doesn't feel like a Mission Impossible movie. That being said, it's the best one yet. It's the best of the three, but so I and I think they kind of had to make this movie just to undo everything from Mission Impossible 2. They have to because in that Ethan Hunt is basically a sociopath. So now he's more of a they're humanizing him. But I don't think your Ethan Hunt is supposed to be humanized. Okay. And why? Why should he not be humanized? Because he is a crazy person. (laughs) 
And they kind of figure that out in uh, the later movies. And I don't think you need the personal life, his marriage and all that. Like, you don't need him to have that personal stake in the mission when the stakes are high enough. I see. I I feel completely on the other end of it. Whereas I like when there is an external conflict as well as an internal conflict. And I feel like it really works well for this because... The whole theme of this movie is, can he balance uh, being a husband as well as a secret agent? And, right. And that culminates with the threat by um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's, this is another one of his great performances. Oh, he's incredible um, in this. And his threat, like, you give me the rabbit's foot or I'll kill your wife. And, and that gives you the stakes right then and there. He's the first Mission Impossible villain I've actually had a stake in as, like, Wow, this guy's a threat. Yeah, I'd say he's probably the best villain of the six movies. Oh, wow. Everything else gets better? Everything else gets better, yes. I agree with you that that Ethan Hunt is a crazy person. I think one of the missed opportunities of this movie is that he should have learned that he can't balance work with pleasure, so to speak, or or work with with Mm -hmm. love. Um, like that would have been a nice bit of pathos for for the guy because on the one hand you understand yeah you're crazy for wanting to balance this out but on the other hand we feel sorry for him so like i think i think there is a way to make it so like we we can coalesce the the crazy side of this idea with the empathy of it and i mean i just liked that this more or less took things to basics. It kind of gets a little, little convoluted um, at, the, at the twist after, um, like, in the third act. But uh, I was on board with this movie, I think, like, like 80% of it. Yeah. I think the thing is, is, like, the reason why, especially in 4, 5, and 6, what makes those movies great has nothing to do with the story or any, like, emotional involvement. It's that they are incredible incredible just like they're master classes in action filmmaking like there's just so many amazing sequences and uh stuff that's done like for real um it's not so much about the story it's more you know what the mission is you know what they have to get and you know how important it is and then it's just about watching pros do impossible missions where they talk about how impossible it's going to be and then they do it Mm -hmm. and then they do that in this too though they do, but it's they do a lot of green screens in this and they do a lot of I'm trying not to talk about other movies that we haven't got <laughs> to yet. Um, you can just say, like, there are better things to come. Yeah, I think once you see a movie that makes it work really well without needing to put Michelle Monaghan in danger, although they do do that again. But I think once you see that it doesn't have to be about that, you'll be like, oh, okay. I think I think for this, it's just like I needed an emotional anchor that, that wasn't really present in the first two movies. Um, like, I want to understand Ethan as a human. So I think maybe in Ghost Protocol, I can, I can sort of lean back on that because there's only so many times you can endanger a guy's wife before it gets boring. Exactly. This honestly, this felt like like what the first one should have like where it should have started because it does making the mission more personal to him i think was a good choice i don't and you're saying like green screen and stuff i i didn't get a sense of that and maybe that's just how good the effects were i think 
yeah, but probably once we get into the later ones, I'll be like, oh, that he definitely did that for real. When he was sliding down the side of that building, is that real or green screen? No. That's nope. not. That's. I would have fooled me. So what they do there is really clever. They have um. So the shot, it's one. Well, there's a there's must be a hidden cut because you see it's one. It looks like one shot where it it comes up towards Tom Cruise. He's looking down. It comes behind him, and you see what he's looking down on. That mm. is, he's actually on the edge of that building, and there must be like a hidden cut when it goes behind him, and then it comes back around, and it's a green screen when he jumps off. Okay, so a lot of a lot of clever editing there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. There must also be a, a hidden cut when he's putting on the Philip Seymour Hoffman mask, and he's talking. Oh my to god, that was my favorite. That was my favorite sequence because it's so fluid. Like he, it goes, it goes from. I just need to fanboy about this. <laughs> it goes from being like obviously fake, and then you see it's all like CG uh, mouth movements. And then it's almost like as Ving Rhames' hand comes around the mask, that's when it's just, and it's Philip Seymour Hoffman. And it's brilliant. And Philip Seymour Hoffman did such a good job at playing Tom Cruise <laughs> as Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like, there's a point where when he's coughing and, like, because the, the voice hasn't uploaded yet. There's that nervousness. You can see, not just, like, the nervousness, but I was like, I can see Tom Cruise <laughs> in the eyes even though that's philip seymour hoffman they should have just used that tech for face off they didn't have <laughs> to do the whole the whole <laughs> body like surgically removing your face it's just, yeah. just go to imf just for sure some tips guys it's a little extreme <laughs> he even had the body suit and it had the, the right uh weight dimensions i guess mm-hmm. that was that was something they just kind of brushed past that that part of it that was funny so, yeah, I would just say as far as sequences in this movie goes is that, like, there aren't a lot of any... really impressive. Yeah, the most Mission Impossible, the, the, the whole Vatican sequence, that feels like a Mission Impossible movie. All the other action scenes, um, like the when they're in the warehouse, because Mission Impossible is not about, like, the shooting, I don't think. The camera work, you mean? Yeah, it was. it's like tight close-ups with long lenses. Yeah, and I don't think that shooting needs to be... Yeah, I don't think Mission Impossible is, is all about the shooting so much as it's about the gadgets and the being smart and outwitting the... There are still some good gadgets and tricks in this one, though. Like, there are, uh, yeah. Like his um, lip reading, the whole lip reading thing. I like they set that up early, and they and it's all and they put that in the first act, just like in Mission Impossible Two, uh, to really remind you just what a creep <laughs> Ethan yeah. Hunt is. In the second one, it's him uh, trapping love interest number seventy-five, just trapping her in the tub. In this one, he's he's eavesdropping on a random conversation with his wife and her and her girlfriends, and then and they bring that back for a little twist in the second act. And there's some lines in that that you can tell Tom Cruise was like, "Let's put them in where they talk about like who is that guy? This guy's so interesting <laughs> and mysterious." Like they're like he right after he does the lip reading part, they're like, "I can't believe did he hear that?" And then someone goes, "I'll marry him." Wait, really? I I. I maybe I don't read lips because I didn't, <laughs> I didn't hear that line. <laughs> Someone goes like, "I'll marry that guy." Oh my god! 
<laughs> also, I love that um, when the call comes for him to like, and he goes, oh, I got to go pick up ice because he knows he's getting a mission. Is It's like the call says, you've won an all expenses paid trip to Mexico. And he mm-hmm. just immediately knows, oh, I have to go to 7-Eleven right. and meet this guy. Is the, like, the way they, maybe there's a specific wordage that they used in that, but yeah. It's maybe, like, but I'm like, how does he know the difference between a scam call and getting a mission? Maybe all of the scam calls we get whenever it's like, you've won a cruise through the Caribbean. <laughs> maybe that's actually like a call to mission to missions a mission. yeah, that yeah. is getting the wrong number. That's a, that's a sketch video right there. There's a sketch yeah. video um, by Mitchell and Webb where uh, there's this the company that people think is like scamming and the way they speak, you know, you just want an ex- expensive cruise and um, and they're all uh, confused about why people don't believe them. But it's because they just that's just how they speak in normal situations. I just don't understand it. Why don't people want to <laughs> take our amazing offers? We just we're just giving away these cruise ships. Uh, I want to read something that I, I'm just looking up here. Uh, okay. Mission Impossible 3. Uh, it's the trapped in the closet controversy. Do you know about this? No. Okay. So there's an episode in South Park where um, Tom Cruise runs into, uh, I think it's Kyle, his closet, and, and just okay. refuses to come out because everyone's making fun of him, I think. And then Kyle and Kyle's like, uh, maybe it's Stan. Uh, Stan is like, Dad, Tom Cruise won't come out of the closet. <laughs> Uh, and it becomes a whole a whole bit, and then uh, and then John Travolta comes in to try and convince him to come out, and then he goes in the closet. Mr. Travolta, you need to come out of the closet. <laughs> uh, so anyway, the um, I'm just reading something here. So a blog entry of HollywoodInterrupted.com in March 2006 alleged that Viacom, parent of Paramount and Comedy Central, uh-huh. canceled the rebroadcast of the South Park episode Trapped in the Closet due to threats by crews to refuse to participate in the Mission Impossible 3 publicity circle. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So so Tom Cruise was like, I'm not going to promote Mission Impossible 3 if that episode airs? Yeah. Or like wow. um, rebroadcast. That's not completely surprising. <laughs> yeah. Um, Tom Cruise on screen is maybe just slightly less crazy than uh, Tom Cruise off screen. Yeah. <laughs> And what I'll say about Tom Cruise in this movie is that, like, because usually he's more of a movie star and, like, he definitely is more of a movie star than an actor. But I think that in some moments in this, he actually does some pretty decent acting. In the opening scene, and then it's, like, when it's the clip from later where Mm -hmm. he's saying, no, please don't hurt her. Please don't shoot her. I mean, obviously, Philip Seymour Hoffman's incredible, but Tom Cruise is doing some pretty solid acting there, I think. Yeah, I think I think for all the lack of incredible set pieces with this one, there's a real emphasis on the performances. Mm-hmm. Like J.J. Abrams is an actor's director. And then another cameo in this movie that like is Simon Pegg. Really, he his part in this movie could be considered a cameo, um, but he becomes a part of the franchise after this one. Yep. If you want to make your movies better, always uh, invite Simon Pegg to the party. Yeah. It's funny though when uh, when we cut to Simon Pegg, the the tone of the film just takes a complete shift. Like, oh, we gotta save my wife. Save my wife. Oh, Simon Pegg's gonna do some little wacky improv, but I don't care because it's Simon Pegg. I love him. 
my favorite line that he does is when he's talking about um, the rabbit's foot, and he goes, I, well, I assume it's a code word. And then they're like, well, of course it's a code word. And then later on, he's like, well, maybe it's not a code word. Maybe it's just a really, really expensive <laughs> bunny appendage. Yeah, very Simon Pegg thing to say. Yeah, and I yeah. think they, I'm going to assume they realized they were sitting on gold there and just like, they were sitting on fraud gold there, to be specific. Um and then decided, oh, we need a comic relief character. Let's bring in Simon Pegg. And Ving Rhames, I really like what they uh, have him do in this one. I, I, I realized that there wasn't enough of him in the first two films. And I like that he's just kind of the sassy best friend. And this is the other thing this is setting up is that even though this Mission Impossible is a Tom Cruise vehicle, the movies are about the team. And they, they really take that to the full effect in the next one this is more like we had the worst one already so this is just like a sign of better things to come yeah i think this is cleaning up the mess from the last one and setting the stage for where mission impossible kind of really figures out what it is right and and still it doesn't feel like like a retcon too much. I think it's more like like we're going to try something different. It's not like Rise of Skywalker where it's like the last film didn't happen cuz I I feel like with most of right. these spy movies they are meant to be pretty disposable. Like Love and Trust for one. That's kind of like a like a running joke where it's a different Love and Trust every time. They have that joke in um Austin Powers where um the Love and Trust from the first one turns out she was a robot the whole time and 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 explodes within the first like five minutes of the movie and he's like wait a tick that means i'm single again <laughs> and i'm guessing that's what happens l- later does Mo- does michelle moyhan stick around um no comment I-, I think i know the answer already they do here's what i'll say they don't just completely write her out okay Okay, that's good. I'm sure that's a, some bullshit a lot of actresses have to deal with. It's like, am I going to be in the sequel? This one came out like five years after Mission Possible 2? Uh, six years, yeah. Yeah, I I would say that if you're someone that like just wants to s- just go through Mission Possible but like hit the ground running, this would be the first one you should watch. Yeah. yeah. I would say so too. Um, and then what I'd say is after you get to six, then it's worth watching the first one because it's an interesting movie that's very dated, mixed feelings about it. But I'd say I wouldn't say start with it. I would say mm-hmm. three, four, five, six, and then watch one for fun. I'm I'm a completionist, so I'm I'm usually like, well, if if, if it's if the bad ones are at the beginning, might as well watch them first anyway. So someone who it, it'll just be like, we'll just have not done our jobs we don't talk about as maggie q is in this movie um, oh yes maggie q you do you have there's no need of you to remind me who maggie q is <laughs> zen you know wait do you not I know don't who know who maggie, q, who maggie is? q is okay she sound like i thought it was like some some r&b pop cameo that <laughs> no she's the other i know i know i know who zen is she's now like... <laughs> i <laughs> Okay, but Maggie Q is in this. What else has she been in? Uh, she's in like Designated Survivor. Um, I think she was in Alias with J.J. Okay. Abrams. J.J. Abrams seems um, to uh, make good friends, I guess, with people. Because Carrie Russell is in this, and she, I think, wasn't she on Lost or something? Or 
Um, oh, no, no, no. She was in uh, Fel- Felicity. Right. She's been in one of the Die Hard sequels. Are you talking about Maggie Q now? Yeah. Okay. Um, she's more. She, m- most of her good credits would be from TV, but okay. she's kind of like a... I'd say she's a go-to badass actor. Right. Okay. They needed that badass lady on the team as the slick eye candy um, that comes in and uses her feminine wiles to get into the party. That old trick. Mm. That is a trope. Which is, that is a trope. not great, but it's it's a spy movie trope. So it's, it's great, and it's not great. It's kind of parodying itself, though. I don't know if it is a parody, though. There isn't enough satire to this. I think with this, it really is just J.J. Abrams following the tropes. There's a line in this. It's like, copy that, and they say, I always copy. I think that was that was a line yeah. by J.J. Abrams put that in there from his diary. I always copy. I always copy. Because it's not very original. At first, I was kind of frustrated with how little Michelle Moynihan really had in the movie. But then it, as it goes on, it's like, okay, they do have a nice chemistry. And I see why he wants that that life away from being a spy. I like that they set up that he's now retired from field work and he is a trainer now. And that gives him a personal stake, not only in Michelle Monaghan, but when he's going to rescue that agent that was captured is that that was a former student of his. Carrie Russell's, yeah. That um, he has had a good relationship with and like trained her and recommended her for field duty. And then it's like, it's because he recommended her when maybe she wasn't ready. Mm-hmm. So there's a bit of guilt there. And that also comes into play when he's interrogating Philip Seymour Hoffman. And then um, and then he lets his anger go. Um, and you, you understand where he's coming from. But then you also... He, I, I liked that there were a lot of mistakes made in this one. Like, like letting the emotions... Mm-hmm. Uh, get in the way, taking those big risks. Like he make he does make some pretty reckless decisions in this, and I liked that because it showed. Oh yeah, he's human. Like it's not just him knowing. Like he he is a smart guy. I'd say he's like borderline evil genius. But there were enough times where it's like, oh yeah, this guy has a heart and emotions, exposing his humanity. This movie isn't too dated but there's a few things in this movie that are just hilarious that show that it was made in the early 2000s like when they're all on the bridge um and all the cars flip over and like people are running around you can hear someone yell does anybody have a cell phone (laughs) as if like this is there was a world when people had cell phones but not everyone was carrying them in their pocket like they do now whereas if today everyone would be filming the thing and someone would say hey maybe someone should stop filming and call 911 <laughs> that's what would happen today yeah I, I, they they needed something to say like oh we need someone to call an ambulance they could have just said someone call an ambulance i don't know it's of its time exactly you know every one of these mission possible movies is a piece of history because the first one was very 90s the second one was very early 2000s this one is just coming out of that it thankfully ditches some of the more egregious early 2000s things. The grunge cover of the uh, opening theme is not in this one. They chose an amazing composer, Michael Cicchino, 
Mm-hmm. And they they do an interesting thing with the score where they really go in with the bass mm. um, in the title sequence. I had to make um, sure that my bass was, so yeah, it was an, it, for this because I was like, this doesn't sound, sound <laughs> bassy enough. So I went, I have this trick for testing my bass on my speaker. I just go to Disney Plus and turn on Aladdin when Jafar says, you are late. Because my subwoofer <laughs> picks that up and it's like, whoa, deep voice. Anyway, continue. Yeah, and on that note with the score, the title sequence in this is cut short and kind of a letdown. Um, it leaves you wanting more, though, to buy the soundtrack. Yeah, but, like, they're supposed... I guess they kind of accomplish the... Because I like the when they do in the first one and not in the second one. So not in two and three, but in all the other ones, they will do the, like, out-of-context right, scenes yeah. from the movie. Yeah, you, you said that. Um, and it almost feels like a TV show, whereas in I guess they kind of set that up with uh, like they give you that same thing with the like mm-hmm. opening scene. But I still like having like a big theme song, especially in a spy movie. And because this is such an iconic score, you might as well right. let it play out. Like Brad Bird talks about that, where they say the studio was always hesitant because as soon as you have a big title sequence, then all of the lawyers get yep. in and say like, well, this person needs a full credit and this person needs a credit. And then. And Brad Bird's like, well, why not just embrace the have a big, expensive title sequence? I like my title sequences. Yeah, I do too. That's some of my favorite moments of like even really crappy movies, like the Flintstones, that old movie. I really like the title <laughs> sequence of that because it mimics the TV show perfectly. But the whole rest of the movie, don't give a shit. <laughs> uh, I'd say probably the reason why it's cut short is because J.J. Abrams is all about that quick pacing got to keep moving got to keep moving he is kind of mm-hmm. kind of an adhd director i think that it's it's right as soon as we realize that his wife isn't actually dead as the uh prologue uh in medias res would have us believe that's when the movie i'm just like wait what what's going on what like they have this body double for his wife to trick him yes and then they find out oh she's just down the street <laughs> The real, his real wife is down the street. And that to me was like, you guys could have taken this step out here. It shows how evil Philip Seymour Hoffman is that he's willing to kill his own translator. What was kind of jarring was I I was saying about like, uh, they weren't using Michelle Moynihan enough. And then she turns out to be a good emotional anchor. But it was kind of jarring when she picks up that gun and just, just nailing all these guys. Well, she's trained by an IMF trainer. Wait, what? Really? Well, Tom Cruise tells her how to work the gun. Like, within, like, 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, but that's his job, is he's a professional IMF trainer. I, I guess, but it's like, congratulations, it's here's your certification, wife. It's, it, it's not the first time he's taught someone how to fire I, a gun. I know, and I'm just realizing that that's kind of a callback to, uh, to Carrie Russell, and almost like a completion of his arc. Like, he's, he's able to train again. Yeah, it does feel a little bit too like for a J.J. Abrams movie. It's a little too wrapped up <laughs> at the end. Like he usually likes to leave things pretty open. But in this, it's a very clear resolution. He's going to live with his wife, but also balance work. And I think that's kind of part with, you know, he's still learning how to make a movie is that he's had success on TV. Um, right. But he doesn't necessarily know because his this is his first movie. And movies are generally 
more of a complete story than a TV show. Like a TV series, you stretch it out over how many seasons, whereas a movie is supposed to be in like a one, two hours. You right. introduce the conflict, mm-hmm. have the conflict play out, and then wrap it out within the one storyline. Yeah, and I think for him, like, I haven't seen Lost, but from what I understand, like, the the finale wasn't even his fault. It was just that he set a bunch of things in motion that he didn't know how to how to finish. The thing is, that what's good with Mission Impossible is that there isn't a lot of story that you really need to like. There isn't a lot of world building they need to do exactly because every Mission Possible is a new mission, and uh, you can dispose of whatever characters you want. You can you can change the style around, and that's the thing I that's another thing I liked about this was that it, it was a very J.J. Abrams movie. Yeah, one of the things I noticed that I thought is so clever um, is that Ethan Hunt's cover is that he works for the Department of Transportation, and then in the scene where he's escaping when he has to go rogue, and pretty much all of the, actually Mission Impossible Two is the only movie where he's employed throughout the entire thing, and all of them he has to go rogue at some point, but he like climbs up to like the upper levels through the elevator shaft. And then there's like, he's in like a storage closet and then he opens a box. Of he's in the closet. And they all say, <laughs> <laughs> and then all the pamphlets are for the department of transportation. And what I realized is I was like, Oh, so the IMF building is like above the department of transportation. Like it's in the same building. Hmm. So that's like the cover for the IMF is that it's the department of transportation. Which I just thought that was I didn't actually clever. make that because I, I I didn't make that I kind of wondered that I was like, do you just have like a building sitting out there if you're a top secret a- organization like where are your headquarters? I think the it would be a fun joke, a little running joke if every movie it's a different organization with every mission they have to relocate. <laughs> It's like in the, in this movie in this movie it's the Department of Transportation. The next one it's going to be uh, the DMV. The next it's going to be at like a Baskin Robbins. <laughs> this is the most you see of like inside IMF how it works. And actually, this movie kind of gave me some theories because in the first you have the bosses Kittredge, and I don't remember the title that they give him. But then in the second one, Anthony Hopkins, his title is Mission Commander Swanbeck. And then in this one, uh, Lawrence Fishburne is executive director of the Impossible Missions Force. And then there's um, the other guy. Um, the double agent? Yeah, is intelligence operative. And he seems to also be a boss of Tom Cruise's in the movie, too. So my thinking is is that there's a bunch of, like, middlemen. So, like, maybe Anthony Hopkins' character is, like, the director of the IMF in Italy or something. So when the mission's in Italy, Anthony Hopkins gives it to him. And then there's, like, the secretary or executive director is, like, the boss overall. That would make sense because otherwise then it's very easy to trace. Like, you have one person that's linked to all these different operations. But as as long as you have enough people in different spots, yeah. I was watching um, a few videos on YouTube about this guy, like, dismantling um, phone scams and how, like, I think you'd have one person that's operating a bunch of different scams like and they're all uh-huh. like a, like it's a small group of people tricking people into like hundreds of dollars but that kind of operation needs to be widespread <laughs> well in an organization like this there's not just going to be one boss and everything else there's always a structure and a hierarchy so but you'd need to that structure and hierarchy would need to be 
mobile in order to keep it from being traceable, I guess. Yeah. But um, th- that's the thing you need. We always need uh, somebody on the inside that's working for the bad guys. And I, I liked that it it wasn't just like everybody's out to get him. Uh, like it wasn't like Lawrence Fishburne. We realized, oh, there's a little more going on behind the scenes. And we thought, oh, this double agent, he's on our side. He's yeah, here to help us. But then it turns out, oh, no, he's on the bad side. And he's just tricking us to trick us again. Yeah, which is which is really um, done pretty well. All right. So before we finish this up, though, we got to talk about Lawrence Fishburne because he's in this movie. Mm-hmm. I like his character because um, they kind of set it up as you start thinking he's going to be the bad guy, but he actually isn't. Right. And it's done in a way that, like, you think, oh, of course, he's a bad guy. But then when you find out that he's not, like, even though he had said things that were rude, it's also just like he was just being the leader of a organization that deals with really important things. Like, if your daily job is to prevent terrorist attacks, you're not going to be like, oh, good, good, good effort there. <laughs> good effort there, Ethan. I know, I know that it didn't work out, but you tried. Well, like the way he speaks, you can interpret it both ways. Like, like at, at the start, after the mission fails, after they after um, they try to save Carrie Russell, but then the bomb explodes in her brain, and then he's like, "It was sloppy. You were sloppy." I thought he was like doing a CinemaSins thing on the movie. <laughs> this ri- this writing is sloppy. How dare you? So that was that was fun. He he was kind of doing like a Sam Jackson Nick Fury sort of thing. But before that. But before that, that's right, yeah. That's something you notice a lot in, like, crime, mobster, uh, spy movies, is people speak with a very, like, double... They use a lot of double entendres, so so you could interpret one thing as another. So they speak very dubiously. So so it, yes. it makes sense he, that... Like, it, it works well for, for his position that um, there is a lot that we don't know. And it's also clever that... Carrie Russell in her little um, so she sends a little micro dot which has this video recording saying I tapped his phone line it was a call that came from uh, Bracter's whatever his character's name is uh, it was it, the call came from Lawrence Fishburne's office and it's right. like oh it's him but but then you realize oh it's the red herring um, it's it's the other guy yeah yeah so that was cl- I thought it was clever yeah, and he does have a lot of just kind of fun lines. My favorite kind of the, like, just humorous lines are when they don't draw too much attention to them. It's just something that they say and then move on quickly. Um, right. So he'll say things like, at some point someone says, well, isn't that unacceptable? And then he says, it's unacceptable that chocolate makes you fat, yet I've eaten my fair share. And then just right. proceeds onwards. Right. As opposed to the line where it's like War of the Worlds and he's like, he's like, well, it's not Ellison in case you're. <laughs> like that's a little that's a little too much but yeah i i liked his his little uh back talk he would be probably one of my favorite of the like bosses in all the movies um, and, and does he appear later on or maybe i i shouldn't even ask this and i was just about to look it up <laughs> well, on letterbox but there's always there. a different boss in each movie right right that's like when i worked at wendy's there was always a different boss i'm like please don't be esther please don't be <laughs> esther <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can shit talk Wendy's right now because I'm not working there anymore. Is there anything else we can we need to address? Um, let me look back through my notes here. Oh, we got to do the talk about his hair. 
Oh, um, that that old thing. Okay. I give Ethan Hawke's hair. <laughs> <laughs> Ethan Hawke's hair. Uh, se- uh, <laughs> seven uh, first reform out of ten. I give Ethan <laughs> Hunt's hair. It's early. Okay, let's never do this again. Um, I give Ethan Hunt's hair uh, 2006 out of 10. 2006 out of 10, okay. Uh, so in comparison, the first one you gave it a B minus, and the last movie you gave it a B plus. Yeah, so about three, the same. It's about c- the same. Okay, I'd say his hair is meh in this movie. This might be his most just meh of the hairs. I'd say... He gets a C in this movie for his hair. As for the country count, um, so they are in America. So Langley, Virginia, when they're at the headquarters, um, there's the warehouse scene, like the first big shooting scene is set in Germany, but that's filmed in L.A., so that doesn't count. That's still America. Um, They go to Italy and they go to China. So that's three countries. All right. Do they actually go to Italy and China? They did, yes. Okay, okay. Three countries, but five fictitious. Well, four fictitious, because they go to Germany fictitiously, but we're only counting if they actually go there, so this movie has a three-country count, so that's also three continents, because you've got Asia, Europe, and North America. Right now, the first one has four countries, but only two continents. Mm. All right, so uh, thank you for listening to us talk about Mission Impossible 3. Uh, It only gets better from here, and uh, we'll see you next time. And remember to wash your hands. I was going to say watch your hands and wash your movies. There's some pretty dirty movies out there. Remember to watch your (laughs) hands. Remember to wash your hands. And watch your movies. There we go. (laughs) 